this is Family Office Intel. Uh, I'm your host, Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. Our guest today is Bob Richards. Bob is the chair of our firm's global restructuring, insolvency, and bankruptcy practice, and leads a number of different um, efforts in the bankruptcy insolvency uh, transactions and litigation. His practice includes Chapter 11 representations, distressed asset acquisitions, distressed loan, distressed loan purchases and foreclosure sales, as well as out-of-court transactions and transaction structuring. So, Bob, thanks for thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, listen, I think this is the beginning of 2023. We're all trying to think about what uh, what are what the economy could be bring into bear where do you see some weakness in the uh in the u.s economy and different parts of the global economy that would have you concerned especially given what you focus on with the companies that you represent sure so as we've seen uh, both for the u.s federal reserve and other central banks they've really been increasing interest rates to get inflation under control at a pretty much unprecedented speed and that hasn't fully hit yet, but it will definitely be hitting throughout the rest of 2023 and into 2024. So uh, it'll hit you know some industries quicker than others, but you know almost everyone borrows money, so ultimately it will hit uh, virtually all all sectors of the economy. Anything in particular that you see coming out of 2022, coming into 2023, of a, a sector? Uh, that that could be particularly affected based on you know what you just mentioned. There's a number of them, so let me talk about some of the ones that we're already seeing and are most likely to um, you know to be significant areas of workout or, or bankruptcies coming up. Uh, one is real estate and hotels, and in particular in that sector, uh, you know, commercial office. You know, are people really going to return to office? Uh, malls have already been troubled. Um, hotels, especially business-oriented hotels in a place that's not a place that people also want to vacation, are struggling. Uh, we're seeing some struggles now in multifamily, especially in areas where you're seeing tech layoffs. So, you know, Northern California, those kind of places. Uh, definitely some construction projects are being put on hold. And then in certain markets, there's also things that have been overbuilt, like uh, warehousing and uh, some of the major users of warehouse are cutting back on their warehouse demand. Uh, bricks and mortar retail has been in trouble uh, for a while, and we expect that to continue uh, short term and certainly long term automotives uh, going to struggle some and in particular anything that's uh, combustion engine focus. So if you're a carburetor manufacturer, uh, you know, you don't have a long-term horizon. And that also relates to support businesses, for instance, gas stations, you know, over time, uh, you know, gas stations are going to, are going to decline as there's more charging stations and less gas stations. Healthcare, you know, continues to struggle, particularly in the U.S. Um, and in particular segments within that would be nursing homes and um, safety net and rural hospitals in particular are struggling. And one of the things that are really hurting nursing homes and hospitals right now is these temporary staffing costs for agency nurses and agency personnel. And that's not a problem that's likely to go away quickly. 
Uh, we're seeing already consumer finance and related support businesses struggling, for instance, um, residential mortgage originators and servicers. And then finally, there's just you know some very highly levered sectors, uh, like a lot of tech deals were done at 9, 10, 11 multiples. Uh, so we expect uh, some struggles there. And any company that's got an upcoming maturity date, especially if it has low fixed interest rate debt now, uh, is going to either have trouble finding refinancing or have to refinance on much more expensive terms. So there's going to be other problems. You've seen crypto, obviously, uh, have some problems already, but those are some of the main areas we're expecting to see particular distress coming up. So if you're a family enterprise business owner or a family office and you've got some uh, work that you've done with direct direct investments, what's one of the things that you should be thinking about if you see one of those direct investments that's struggling? You know, a lot of times we see people put off uh, something that's a, a likely problem and hope things will turn around. And usually that doesn't lead to good results. Uh, usually if you're proactive, uh, and have some lead time, uh, you can have better results. You know, generally in any kind of bankruptcy case, uh, you know, assets tend to get sold, uh, existing investors tend to get wiped out. So, you know, if you can deal with the problems with enough runway that you don't have to file for bankruptcy, it's much more likely that uh, existing equity is going to survive in some form. Um, Having realistic projections and realistic value, current valuations, uh, you know, can be key to making sure that you know you know how deep or not deep uh, the problems are going to be. Uh, you're going to want to assess: uh, is it a temporary problem that you can get through with maybe a little extra liquidity, or is it really a long-term problem uh, where you need some more serious fixes? Anytime you have, you know, an immediate crisis, you know, you've got, you know, you're not going to make the next payroll. Uh, there's somebody that's about to get a judgment against you. Uh, you know, that, that, that can alter, uh, you know, the mechanics. So you definitely want to think about those in advance rather than uh, when they're about to hit. Uh, and, you know, there's many different ways to address them. There's, you know, business ways to address them and legal mechanisms to address them. But, as a general rule, the more upfront you are, uh, the better off you're going to come on your re ultimate recovery. So, if you are um, looking at these areas uh, with your with your direct in investments, if what are what are some of the issues around debt holders and equity holders uh, that they should be considering in terms of their rights if they're if if they're one of their investments uh, or a company that they're involved with is approaching insolvency. I mean, you know, there's different levels, both in out-of-court deals and in bankruptcy deals. Let, let me kind of walk through the hierarchy of claims in general. Uh, and, you know, different family offices may be at different levels or sometimes multiple levels on these hierarchies. So generally you have uh, senior secured debt. Sometimes that's a single lender. Sometimes it's an, a syndicate uh, with an agent. Sometimes you have junior secured debt on the actual assets uh, behind that. Uh, and then sometimes you have mezzanine loans, especially in real estate. But the thing to keep in mind with mezzanine loans is they don't have liens on the real estate itself. They only have liens on 
the equity in the real estate. So essentially they're structurally subordinated to all of the project level debt. Uh, the costs of any insolvency process uh, generally get paid. Uh, and even if there's no value above the secured debt, you know, the professionals aren't going to do the insolvency process unless the secured debt agrees they're going to get paid. Then in the next priority typically is certain employee claims. It's not always every employee dollar, but employees generally uh, get paid at least, you know, current wages and current uh, vacation. Uh, most tax claims uh, tend to be priority claims. And then after that, you tend to get down to critical vendors or uh, people whose contracts or, or leases are assumed in the bankruptcy case. Uh, and then finally, you get uh, general unsecured creditors, which can be trade creditors. It can be tort claimants uh, if they're not fully insured. Uh, and, you know, it can be a wide range of people. And sometimes people have unsecured bond or other debt. After you get through all the, you know, the debt levels, then you have uh, any recoveries for stock. You know, some companies have some sort of preferred stock or quasi-preferred equity. Uh, and if there's multiple levels of that, uh, you know, it goes in that priority. And then the lowest uh, is common stock. One, one other thing I wanted to mention is it's very important to understand if you have a shareholders agreement or you have an intercreditor or subordination agreement, uh, you know, what your rights and obligations are under that, because, you know, people will enforce those in an insolvency context. If a family is more of a passive investor, whether they're through a fund um, or they're doing it direct, um, how should they be thinking about their strategy if they think that's one of their investments in a more passive function, uh, ownership type of structure is struggling? What, what, are, what are some of the things that you've seen that families um, have done to be proactive and not just reactive in situations like that? Well, part of it depends on the kind of investment you have. So if it's, you know, something that, you know, there's a, a public market for, you're otherwise free to sell, then you have to decide how much confidence you have in the fund turning things around versus how much you want to just get out and take whatever lumps uh, you've got. Uh, some of these funds obviously are pretty liquidity restricted and you can only get out in certain times and certain windows. So there you have less flexibility uh, as to whether you, you, know, you can sell out. Uh, you certainly can talk to whoever the fund is or whoever's managing the investment, understand how much distressed experience they have, uh, you know, ask questions about how they intend to deal with the particular things that are causing them trouble. Uh, and you know, at least let them know that you're actively monitoring it, even if you don't have the ability to direct them to do something, uh, so that they know that you know there's a watchful eye on it, and that you and perhaps other investors you're aligned with, um, you know, are really looking at you know what their plan is to deal with the troubles and hopefully uh, get you something back on your investment, whether it's equity or whether it's debt. What about being more opportunistic, right? So if you see that there are issues uh, in, in businesses that are uh, struggling, you know, how should families be thinking about the potential to buy out different investors or parties that are in, the, uh, uh, in that investment or 
buying up uh, loans that are associated with some of these investments, you know, being a little more strategic uh, for people that may be thinking about uh, how to exit something like that, but somebody that's committed, more committed or has a different opinion on that particular investment, is there, are there ways that they can be proactive uh, in those areas that you've seen uh, that has worked out for, for folks that, you, that you've worked with? Yeah, often you see the senior lender has fatigue. Maybe it's traditional bank or some someone that doesn't want uh, a distressed credit long term, and uh, it may well be in the interest of equity or junior creditors uh, to buy them out or to buy their position at a discount, um, and they may well be uh, willing to do that. And in fact, if they don't end up selling to you. They may go to the distressed market and sell to someone else, um, and you may not like who that buyer is. So you know it's it, it's in your interest to uh, you know control the senior debt, especially if it's secured. Uh, you make sure you've got as much rights uh, as as they have. Sometimes you'll see uh, you know holdouts like you know you need unanimous shareholder transaction approval for a, a sale and one or two squeaky wheels won't go along with it. Uh, and it may be you buy them out. Sometimes you have the right to do that under your shareholders agreement. Other times uh, it's just a negotiated transaction. And sometimes even if someone isn't a squeaky wheel, you know, if you really believe you can turn around the company and someone else has less confidence, you know, you can go around and buy other other positions, you know, maybe even trade debt. And if you are able to turn around the company, you know, you're able to do so at a significant profit versus the people who just want uh, their liquidity and to get out of the transaction. Bob, can you put that in context of debtor and possession financing? What is that? Can you talk about that concept? Sure. Um, debtor and possession financing is a concept that in, in a bankruptcy c case uh, under Section 364 of the Bankruptcy Code, uh, the bankruptcy court can approve new financing. And in fact, you know, in some circumstances can improve, approve new financing that's peri pursu or even senior uh, to some of the existing financing. Uh, there's certain legal standards that need to be met as to whether you can prime someone's position. But where we particularly see debtor in possession being uh, important is if you, um, you know, let's say you're an equity holder and you're willing to put in more liquidity, but you don't want to put it in as more equity. Uh, you know, you could consider, for instance, providing a debtor in possession financing facility or on an out-of-court basis. Sometimes we see the, you know, the, the insiders buy a junior participation in the existing senior uh, loan to get the senior to provide them with more liquidity and more breaks. Uh, but, you know, there's a way for you to kind of improve your new money's position. So at least you're more likely to get uh, your new money out and can better protect whatever existing debt or equity you have in the company as well if you believe in the company and others don't uh, believe in it so much. So if you've gotten to that point where, um, you're, you're, you're working through or one of your investments are, are working through an insolvency uh, issue. What, what are the different kinds of insolvency uh, proceedings that people should be thinking about or, or know about at least 
at, um, at a strategic level? Sure. I'm in the U.S., so I'll mainly talk about U.S. Uh, type of proceedings, but many other jurisdictions in the world have similar concepts um, in their jurisdictions. Certainly Canada has very similar concepts to us. So, you know, the, the classic thing that people think about is a Chapter 11 case. In a Chapter 11, at least initially, management's in control. Uh, you know, you can try to reorganize the business. You can try to sell it as a going concern. Uh, you can try to do an orderly liquidation. Often you see retailers, uh, you know, try to do an orderly liquidation to sell the inventory at higher prices and uh, uh, try to market and sell below market. Uh, leaseholds. Uh, so you can do many things in a chapter 11, but you know that's what most businesses that are trying to do some sort of going concern value will pursue. Uh, there's also a, a chapter seven, which is um, really a fire sale, a liquidation under the control of a uh, trustee appointed off a panel. Uh, typically, those trustees won't operate the business. They'll just uh, shut the doors day one I let go all the employees and try to collect the accounts receivable and sell the assets quickly for whatever they can uh, pursue them for. And then there's some, some other state court remedies that are somewhat like, uh, you know, bankruptcy. So, you know, there's receivership, often receivership sought at the uh, request of the secured lender, especially if the secured lender, for instance, wants to have better control over its collateral but doesn't necessarily want to own its collateral yet. Uh, for instance, you know, may not want to own a shopping mall. And in some places like Illinois, you know, it may take two or four years to foreclose uh, in foreclosure court. So they, they want to be in control of their collateral until uh, they can complete the foreclosure process. And then in some states in the United States, they have something called an assignment for the benefit of creditors, which is somewhat akin to a chapter seven, except you, you pick your own S&E who acts as a fiduciary under state law. Uh, and often that S&E has some limited ability to operate or some limited ability to sell assets on something like a more going concern basis. And like I mentioned, you know, there, there, there's comparable concepts certainly in most uh, developed nations uh, to these kind of insolvency proceedings we have in the U.S. When you're looking at a, a Chapter 11 uh, scenario, what does the timeline look like that um, uh, for uh, typically for a, a company that's going through a Chapter 11? You know, I've been practicing 35 years and it's changed over time. Uh, the most common type of Chapter 11 case now is a quick sale or quick liquidation. Often they have the buyer in the wings and the buyer wants to buy through a bankruptcy so it can get a free and clear order. It can take the contracts and leases it wants and jettison the ones uh, that it doesn't want. Um, and so that phase of the case typically goes you know, pretty quickly. It can go anywhere from, you know, as little as something like 30 days to, you know, 120 days, uh, depending on especially how much marketing of the asset occurred pre-petition. Then, you know, there's other phases of the case af after the assets are turned to cash, you know, claims processing litigation that can take years, but 
you know, the, the actual getting the business through a bankruptcy often is quick. Uh, there are still some cases that do the traditional plan of reorganization. The big difference with a plan of reorganization is that uh, creditors get the vote on that plan and there's a disclosure statement that's somewhat like a proxy statement that describes the plan and there's a whole bunch of you know standards that need to be met for the plan to be uh, confirmable. So it, it's a more complex and more uh, time-consuming way uh, to get the, the bankruptcy uh, administered, but there can be some advantages. For instance, uh, with real property, if you do it through a Chapter 11 plan, you may be able to get an exemption from transfer taxes or certain mortgage recording taxes, which can be sizable in some jurisdictions. Uh, you may be able to preserve uh, net operating loss carry forwards, which will be very valuable if the business is able to be profitable in the future. And it may be possible to get uh, third party releases or exculpations. So yeah, there's some things, if you had the time and the inclination, you can get in a plan that you can't get in a quick uh, Section 363 uh, sale, but it, but it is more complex. When when families are looking at these situations, how do they maintain you know their rights um, and and be thinking about that as they're going through a procedure like this with with either the company that they're uh, passively or very actively involved with? It's, and I'll focus you know on on more active because in, in passive, often you're relying on an agent or a lead uh, to protect your rights for you, uh, although you want to make sure that they're paying attention. Uh, and some of these things come up very, very quickly. So uh, generally, you know, you want to monitor the case if it's any kind of material investment from day one. The good news is all bankruptcy court dockets are online now and everything's electronic. So it's not you know, nearly as expensive to watch what's happening in a case than, you know, when you had to go down and actually attend the hearing in the olden days. Uh, some of the things that, you know, you particularly want to pay attention to, so often day one or very early in the case, someone will propose debtor in possession financing. You have the debtor in possession financing is proposing to, for instance, prime secured liens. You know, you want to know about that if you're a secured creditor. You know, they may have hefty exit fees, hefty, hefty upfront fees. Uh, so, you know, you're going to want to understand how much they're diluting you. And if it's too unattractive, uh, you know, you may want to say, give me time. I want to propose a rival dip financing facility uh, that's on more favorable terms uh, than the one that's being proposed. Uh, another thing that can come up pretty quickly in a lot of cases is these free and clear uh, sale motions, and often they're quite aggressive about what they're trying to sell free and clear from and seek uh, other findings. So, you know, you want to have those watched very carefully. Sometimes if there's been, you know, significant, uh, you know, fraud, you've got an Enron, you've got most currently like an FTX or a Celsius, uh, there'll be a request for an examiner or a trustee uh, and if one's appointed, you know, the, you know, they look out for the interests of, of many people, including uh, a number of the retail uh, type investors and look into some of the, uh, you know, the diversions and bad acts that are um, acute, 
at least alleged to have occurred. Uh, there's often a, a claims bar date and you know you need to file uh, your claim even if it's still a contingent claim. Let's say, for instance, you're a director and officer and you have an indemnification claim, uh, you, know, you would need to file that by the bar date. Uh, sometimes if you have an executory contract or lease, say a long-term supply agreement, a real estate lease where your tenants in bankruptcy, uh, the, the entity in bankruptcy can do one of three things. It can assume the contract and say, I'm going to keep the contract going forward. It can assume and assign it to a third party. Let's say it's selling the business to someone else. Or it can reject the contract and say, I, you know, I don't want the space anymore. I don't want your supply agreement anymore. Uh, yeah, I want to get out of this. It's, I think it's burdensome. Uh, and in all those instances, you know, usually you, you either have to say, you know, I, you know, I have a cure claim, for instance, in an assumption, and you, know, you need to pay me this much to assume. And if you're going to assign it to someone else, you need to show that they're able to perform. If it's a rejection, you know, you're typically going to have uh, some sort of claim for your future lost damages for the duration of the contract or at least one year of the lease. So, you know, it's important to pay attention to those and file your claim in time. Uh, we talked a little bit about Chapter 11 plans. Uh, you know, you're going to uh, want to typically vote on that plan. Uh, that plan may include some objectionable provisions. Let's say that you have uh, litigation rights against officers or directors, and they're proposing a release of those officers and directors, you're going to want to object to those releases. And then finally, towards the end of the case, uh, people tend to think about litigation. So, you know, you might get a preference demand letter saying, you know, you receive these kind of payments within 90 days of the bankruptcy, pay it back. Uh, you might get an actual, you know, lawsuit filed in the bankruptcy case. Uh, so, you know, you need to be on the lookout for those kind of exposures and defend that. And then in some larger cases, especially you'll see something that's not yet a suit, but called a bankruptcy rule 2004 investigation. So you'll get uh, a subpoena asking for documents and a subpoena asking to, you know, take your deposition if you were an officer and director. Uh, and in the first instance, those are kind of fishing expeditions, but ultimately, depending on what they find, it can turn into lawsuits afterwards. So, you know, it's important to take those seriously and, you know, assume that, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to find money somewhere and you don't want it to be yourself. So in that aspect of trying to make sure you have all of your ducks in a row there, what should family members or members of a family office staff or individuals connected to that be thinking about when it comes to personal liability? I mean, are, should they be thinking about how to how to protect themselves in advance with the right kinds of insurance, you know, kind of representation? Should they be resigning from organizations that are struggling like this? What 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 are some of those things that you've seen that are important to, to make sure that you consider to make to, uh, you know, uh, put put the family in a good position? Um, because these are often, as you mentioned, contentious types of um, situations and and uh, and 
you know, the family can be a, uh, if, if it's a very significantly wealthy family, it could be an area where a, a, a debtor or somebody like that could be looking um, for um, a, a a place to, uh, to, to, to help uh, on the money side. Sure. So it's, it's particularly uh, a risk for someone who's serving as an officer or director of the entity. Um, it can also sometimes be a, uh, a risk if you're uh, a majority or controlling shareholder. Uh, you know, there's certain kinds of liabilities that are statutory. Uh, one of the primary ones is trust fund taxes. So that would be payroll taxes, sales and use taxes, and more often than you would think, uh, businesses struggling for liquidity uh, don't pay those current. And if they don't get paid, uh, the state will come after not only the company, but all officers and directors, uh, you know, trying to collect those, those taxes. So if you, you know, you're an officer or director of a business that's struggling, uh, you know, you're going to want to talk to your CFO and say, you know, show me that all the trust fund taxes have been paid current and will be paid current going forward. Uh, likewise, any money that the business collects for employees, so let's say 401k contributions or self-funded medical or the like, you're going to want to make sure that that gets to the actual plan and isn't being used for working capital. Uh, you know, in some states, there can be liability for wages and paid time off. Uh, so, you know, generally, you want to make sure that those kinds of things have gotten paid. And then we're increasingly seeing, um, you know, different class actions and in insolvency situations. And we see wage and hour class actions. We see uh, war warned class actions saying, you know, you didn't give a warn notice or you didn't give enough warn notice and therefore, uh, you know, you're, you should be liable for a, a large claim there. Uh, for publicly held companies, sometimes you see a securities class action uh, brought and there can also be uh, claims if, for instance, you're on the board and you offer authorized a dividend or distribution six months ago, 12 months ago, you know, was the business really solvent when you authorized that? And what was your business basis uh, for, for authorizing that? Uh, also, if the business is insolvent, uh, you know, you may owe a fiduciary duty to creditors and not to shareholders. So there's a lot, a lot of potential landmines here, including, you know, potential just general DNO suits. Uh, one thing that I always advise directors and officers why they're on the board is, you know, make sure you're acting on a well-informed basis with, you know, solid minutes, solid board books so that you can say, hey, I satisfied the business judgment rule, certainly on some kinds of action that helps on others that are statutory, like, you know, you didn't remit your trust fund taxes. Uh, it doesn't matter whether uh, you have a good board book or not, uh, you're, you're just statutory liable because it's the state's money and it didn't get remitted to the state. In terms of whether, uh, you know, you want to resign, uh, certainly your resigning can help in terms of anything going forward that, you know, you know you're not approving it, you're not involved with it. If something happened 
uh, before then that say, you know, someone was embezzling money and you didn't capture it or, you know, something else happened, you know, generally resigning won't uh, protect you necessarily from claims related to things that happened, you know, why you were a director, uh, why you were an officer. Uh, there are some downsides to resigning, you know, obviously you have less ability to uh, influence how the uh, workout or how the bankruptcy goes going forward. And, you know, sometimes, especially if they're going to file bankruptcy, there's not as much risk in being a director or an officer going forward because in bankruptcy, anything out of the ordinary course of business, you know, a sale, a financing, another material decision needs to be proved by the bankruptcy court. So you know, there's often less risk in doing that because the, uh, you know, the, the bankruptcy court is the ultimate decision maker, not the board. The board more recommends than uh, actually implements. In terms of insurance policies, I think DNO people are very familiar with DNO insurance, whether they're on a nonprofit or a for-profit type of entity or uh, business that they're dealing with. What about DNO tail policies? What do those look like and what are they and how should, be people th- how should people be thinking about them? Yeah, I mean, anytime you're involved in a distress situation, you know, early on, you, you want to understand, you know, what is the policy? Sometimes there's multiple layers of coverage. Um, is it a claims made policy? Is it a claims incurred policy? Uh, is it about to come up for renewal? If so, you know, is, is the company... Uh, renewing it, uh, you know, those are things you want to understand immediately. And then almost all policies have what's called a, a tail right or an extended reporting period. And that says that if you pay an extra premium of X dollars, you can get an extended reporting period for a year. If you pay X plus Y, you can get it for three years. You know, sometimes they go as long as six years. And, you know, the reason you might want longer is, you know, to outlive any statute of limitations. What's important to understand about, uh, you know, tail policies is, uh, you know, it, it would cover any suit, you know, brought in that extra year or extra three years, but only for things that happen generally before the policy ended. So, you know, it doesn't cover going forward. It would only cover, you know, uh, times when the policy lapsed and the le- essentially cover your defense costs and maybe cover your liability uh, going forward. You know, you're going to want to understand uh, exclusions under the policies because DNO doesn't cover, you know, everything. Um, so, you know, you're going to want to understand if there are pending claims, are they likely to be covered or not? Um, DNO uh, tail policies uh, you know, can have some hefty premiums. Um, ideally, you know, you, you want the company or the company's lender to fund those premiums, perhaps for cooperation to wind down. Sometimes they'll do that. Sometimes they won't. If you if they don't, then you have to decide, you know, collectively with the other directors, am I nervous enough that we want to fund the tail or do I, I just want to go without the tail? Uh, and also there's time windows to, you know, do the tail option. So you want to make sure, especially if the policy is expiring, that you, you know, exercise the tail uh, timely so that it, it's there to protect you going forward from 
suits and at least defense costs. So reflecting on everything that you've been working on in this space, what's the one lesson learned in your practice? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, you know, being proactive and being realistic. I mean, you know, we see so many times where people, you know, hope for the best. You know, they know that things aren't great, but, you know, maybe they've been through bad periods before and, you know, something's worked out and they just don't want to face reality until, uh, you know, it's pretty dire. And that that usually is not a good situation for directors, officers, investors, uh, you know, those kind of people, those, those situations tend, tend to end up in liquidation, sale to competitors, uh, litigation. So I, I would say being proactive and being realistic is, is a key. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Bob, for, for joining uh, today. Really appreciate the, the background and and the advice uh, on this. And if, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to, to find uh, to find you? Yeah, uh, on the Denton's website, my uh, you know, email is robert.richards at dentons.com. Uh, and you know, happy to answer any follow-up questions. I will mention that you know, in the US, we're over 45 uh, restructuring lawyers and worldwide, including in Canada, you know, you were over 400. So, uh, you know, we can cover your needs uh, anywhere that they may arise. Excellent. Well, thank you, Bob. And uh, thanks, everybody. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone.